Welcome to the PR Moment Podcast. Produced in association with the Marketeers Network. This week on the PR Moment Podcast, I'm interviewing Adrian Talbot, Global CFO at Hotwire. Before I start, I just wanted to make sure that all our listeners are aware that the PR Moment Awards are now open for entries. New for 2019, all shortlisted work will get feedback on your entry relative to your competitors within the category. So check out the PR Moment Awards site where you can have a look at all the details. The first entry deadline is in December. It's a change of tack this week. I thought it'd be interesting to get an experienced PR agency finance director on. Every successful large PR agency owner I've ever spoken to has told me that how employing a good FD was a vital part of their business journey. So I thought it'd be good to speak to Adrian, who has been FD at UBM, ITV, Burson Marsteller, College Hill, now Instinctive, and since 2016, Hotwire. Adrian, welcome to the PR Moment podcast. Delighted to be here. Thank you. So tell me, what are the key challenges for an FD in a consultancy business? Um, I think there's probably about three things. The um, uh, sort of give you the headline, revenue visibility, managing your staff costs and understanding the business. Um, and if you come first to revenue visibility, one of the challenges is you can really only see perhaps three months ahead. So when I'm trying to forecast revenue in these businesses, um, many clients will not commit in that time frame or have not yet decided what they want to do. When you say um, revenue visibility, yeah. what does that mean? Sorry, it means I, being able to, on a spreadsheet, say uh, we're, we're sitting here at the end of October, so I could probably see our revenues out to January. And beyond January, it's a little bit murky. Right. So just because of, you know, nowadays you have a lot of project revenues from clients have not yet made those decisions. Um, and so that is your your short term, whereas in other businesses, you might know how many cars you're going to make in a year. You might know how many you're going to sell. Well, you um, think you know, you I think suppose. You know, but I think yeah. you know. Um, so I think the short term, it's the visibility three years, three months ahead is the challenge. Right. Um, allied with um, if your clients are deciding in that time frame, you have a permanent staff cost to manage. So, you know, if you have changes in revenue, you're trying to manage a, a staff base alongside that. Um, and I think the, the one thing I learned in the communications business was um, the product's not tangible in the way that, you know, I spent, a, I call it my year in sabbatical in advertising, um, where you can see the product. Um, in consultancy services, the product is in the room with the client. So actually beginning to understand what your your colleagues are advising a client in a room or creating a campaign or an idea, it's quite hard to see that. And to relate as an FD, do you mean? Yes, or as an FD, and okay. trying to understand the business you're, you're working yeah, in. You know, okay. We're selling time. Yeah, um, we're selling. Um, you know, our, our, we're selling our people and their time, largely, and the and, value and their they advice. Create. And, and their it's quite advice. hard unless you're in that room. Yeah. It's hard to see. Correct. Yeah, okay. And I mean, I think the the only things that um, I consciously did quite early in my communications career was get in, get as involved in the business as I could. So. I showed up at new business meetings. I showed up at marketing events. I, I showed up everywhere where my colleagues said, "What you know? What are you doing here? You're the F, you're the FD. Get back in your room." <laughs> you're going to my style. <laughs> and, and a couple of examples for you, you know, which are completely true. I, I attended a general election marketing event one day, and I used to end up picking off the people that so everybody would huddle with their clients. I would pick off the stragglers, and I picked off a, 
um, a gentleman standing on his own. And all I knew as I approached him, he had a lot of writing on his name badge. But of course, you can't really look at that. And I started talking to him and he said, I'm the Chinese ambassador to London. And um, I then sort of fumbled around, okay, I've been to Hong Kong. And one of my colleagues arrived and did a very deep bow and said, Your Excellency. And I thought, hmm, made a slight mistake here. But the, um, you know, doing things like that, I went to a dinner with Alistair Darling, the Chancellor at the time, when, when New Labour was in power, and sat around a table where everybody was introducing themselves as, as CEO of this and that. And when it came to me, what are you doing here? I'm here to pick up the bill. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, Alistair Darling talked to me afterwards. And I think the being involved in the business and not being the finance person in the dark corner with the spreadsheet yeah. is crucial to add value around um, people and beginning to understand, meet clients, understand the business, the services, what we're trying to do. That's my philosophy anyway. So just going back to your key challenges, there yeah. was revenue visibility. Yes. I interrupted. What was the, the other one? The, the second managing, one was... Managing staff costs alongside that. Gotcha. So, so, you know, actually, if unless you are continually monitoring your revenue um, and flexing your, your staff base where you can... Well, what does that mean? Um, that means that uh, well, an well, element you, of the staff cost needs well, to be so it's judging. Yes, and so if you, if you look, yeah, that's the flexible part. But if you also look ahead and you can see that your revenue is becoming stronger or your revenue is becoming weaker, that you are um, either supporting your colleagues and saying, yes, we need to go and hire three people right now right. To, to work on that business, or we need to be quite careful in the next few months because until we get you know, the, the answer on those three pitches and we know where we're going, we can't be certain. Um, right. And that's the constant battle in, in agencies. And I suppose in the end, yeah. that's, that's a, as long as you've got the, the right information coming to yeah. you, that's a relatively simple thing in the short term to forecast, is it? The, the trick is it, having, the, having it that It is, reports. but it's, um, if you look at the pipeline in these agencies, so, you know, the, the business that you're pitching, that you're talking, it's very fast moving. You know, in a particular week, um, there's a Monday morning um, new business meeting at Hotwire where they work through every single opportunity and look at the probabilities and the weighting and the, there's such a, so many things can move. I can hear one thing on a Monday that's changed by totally. a Wednesday and you're yeah. constantly trying to judge yeah. in this role. You're trying to judge, OK, do I believe they're going to win that? Um, do they actually you know, know what's going on? So it's quite dynamic and fast well, it's moving. It's very hard, even if you're uh, on, the, on the pitch team for that, trying to, trying to guess how likely you are to win or not is extremely difficult, isn't it? it can be. Well, it's hard, but you can. I mean, we, we, well, we do a qualification process. So, you know, you do try to understand does right. – you know, does this client actually have budget? Are they serious about what they want to do? Are there buy signals? Are there, you know, are there, you know, are we one of twenty in this pitch process, or are we one of three? Yeah. Um, there are, there are, there is information you can seek that helps you decide, um, um, you know, the what to pitch in the first place, and sure. then also how likely that is to come through. Fine. And the third one was. Um, was really understanding the services. So my long story about Chinese ambassadors and chancellor was getting involved in the business so that you understand, you okay. meet clients. Um, you know, I could easily not know as many clients as I do, but um, I've made it a conscious effort to get to know them and that helps in the good times and the bad. I often say I'm in charge of births, marriages and deaths at Hotwire. So when they're coming in the door, the contract, the start of services, um, in the middle bit when everything's going fine and happy <laughs> and, and the death. And we hope we don't have so many of those. But often at the end, you will be, you know, negotiating the termination. And um, building the relationships is actually crucial for all of those stages. Okay. So they're not just meeting you 
when they're correct. To absolutely, the they're not, and they actually know who I am, and that means I can call them if we're not being paid. I can actually today, just before coming to see you, I've done a, uh, a review call with one of our clients um, where I'm closely involved to okay. as the board sponsor. And I think the getting involved with the clients actually really helps um, do the finance job as well. OK. Now, what do PR firms tend to get wrong in their financial management? Um, I think um, managing that pipeline and forecasting the revenue. So the things I've just described to you um, – a lot of agencies you know, doing that rigorously weekly, actually monitoring your business, you know, forensically all the time is important in, in this, you know, invisible time frame I've, I've described to you. So actually having a weekly revenue forecast, having a pipeline so you are monitoring the revenue and constantly updating that um, is quite hard to do. Um, and I've seen um, – I've worked in some agencies where – it wasn't even written down. There was no methodology. There was no rigor. And so I think to, um, you know, the day-to-day, getting those day-to-day basics correct is is really important. And then I think there are some more obvious things such as over-servicing clients. So PR people as a breed um, would will always want to service the client. And, and if there are issues coming up or problems um, – confronting that and, and saying to a client, look, sorry, we are doing far more work than we originally intended. Please pay us something extra. Or saying to a client, we are always over-servicing because on your side, client, you've got a problem. Yeah. Um, having those tough conversations early enough with impact and trying to get to solutions is, I call it, you've asked financial management, but I think it's important for the protecting the agency and often the client. And I think what happens is if you are open, transparent, and transparent is one of Hotwire's values. Clients often appreciate it, um, that even if it's a difficult conversation and you are trying to get to an outcome around budget or service, um, actually being... Well, it's in, it's important know. the client values that... that I mean, we're, we're talking about it in, in, in units of time currently. We'll come on to that in a minute. But mm. the... If they don't have a value attachment to that, a huge amount of time can be wasted doing not very important things, can't it? And and it seems to me as soon as a client thinks, blimey, is reminded that there there is a finite amount of resource they paid for, things things that relationship does change. It, it seems to me. Yeah, and I think one of the things to remember that was an early insight in my career, but it wasn't early. It took me a few years to work it out. That when you know when a PR professional meets a client comms professional. The number one thing at the top of their list normally is actually not the budget. It's actually the ideas, the concept, mm. what we're going to do together. Yeah. And on both sides, and it's not intentional, on both sides, the the budget can be quite lower the, you know, down in the stack. And um, so you can often find that that's either left to the end of a meeting or not discussed early enough. And all the excitement around the campaign, the ideas is what drives the conversation. And so finding... For example, but that, you know, that's the same in in most marketing services business, isn't it? Is that is PR particularly um, different on that? I don't know. I don't. Um, I'm not. I don't think I'm saying PR is different. I mean, I've you know, said to you, I spent a year in advertising. It's it's where the numbers can be on certain campaigns enormous. Um, yeah. So you know, your your the third party costs on something can be enormous compared to your fee. So um, I think it's more in a creative, if that's the point, in a creative environment where people are thinking ideas, and, and you know that is what they're being employed for. Um, numbers and money is just not as interesting. Gotcha. Um, From both sides? Yeah. Okay. And I think the other thing I was going to say on this topic, um, 
sort of hinted at it already, is, is agencies not being aggressive enough in the final stages of winning business. And what I mean by that is I can often see buy signals from a client and the team will be looking at me, the pitch team will be looking at me and saying, oh, we haven't won it. It's terrible. Um, and so um, that is the time I like to see the teams being brave around pricing and realizing, trying to recognize those buy signals um, and not falling falling because what happens is the client and the team should fall in love with each other if everything's working well. I want them to not you know, sort the money out before they're completely in love. And <laughs> we have a... Don't worry, we'll do it for free. <laughs> exactly. And, and they work, you know... Um, um, so I think, you know, that... Um, and I, for example, you know, for nearly all of my public relations career, I've been running negotiation training. I've got a bit of a passion for it um, across the entire business. I've run it in every office in Hotwire, for example, where just teaching the basics of negotiation to everybody and making raising that competence across the business right. because, um, as I described earlier, when you're not in the room, you want your people to have the skills to be able to handle those conversations. Well, it, it sounds like a flippant remark, and, it, and, it, and I don't mean it negatively, but PR people do love to say yes. You know, they, and they um, and, and I think that can be that can be, a lot of the time. That's a really good thing because it, what it yeah. means is that they they will go that extra mile to try and to try and achieve something or go beyond the, the the expectation of the client or whatever else. But it's also it can be a difficult thing because it means that, um, as you say, the the, the the financial element can be a bit of an afterthought. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think your observation is accurate, best of my experience. Okay. Um, um, but, you know, some are better than others. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. Um, it yeah, just sure. depends. Okay. Now, um, the cost base of most PR firms is – well, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because what you've sort of – I'm trying to build a picture in my, in my mind. You've got a – to a large extent, a, a fixed cost base, which we can, we'll talk mm. about in a minute. Uh, and then you've got a, a – um, a, a revenue stream that is less difficult, harder, harder to anticipate, harder to manage to an extent. I mean, it's you know, it doesn't it, it, and, and there's there's clearly some interesting trends there on on the movement from retainer fees to project fees, mm. which again, let's come on to in a minute. But on the cost side of things, what makes up the, the cost base of most PR firms? I mean, I could ask you the question I ask in my training course, but I won't put you on the spot in that way. So if on, we had an... Me, it, give, me, give me a go. Okay. So, <laughs> so Ben, if we had an agency, you and I, and yeah. it had an income of £100, yeah. a small agency, um, you know, what percentage of that £100 do you think we would spend on people, you know, payroll, staff costs? I, saw, I think I know the answer. Oh, but God. I think it's sixty percent, isn't it? Is that tends to be the very, 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 very yeah. good student. And if we move on to, um, <laughs> so, we, so we got the people sorted. If we move on to, you know, operating expenses. So we now know you and I. We need an office. We need to spend. We need two computers. We need to do some marketing. You know, what percentage are we going to spend on on that? Well, historically, it's only twenty percent, which I, I'm always surprised. It's that well, go on. Yeah, is that right? No, yeah. no I mean, you're spot on. Yeah. I mean, I, it's um, clearly you know the industry really well. When I asked this in my training course, you can get a variety of answers. So you know, the staff costs can be up at seventy or eighty, right. um, and you know, that would be a very high end financial PR or perhaps public affairs where people are more senior. Right. That's possible. You know, where you have a higher cost base. Um, the twenty percent, and so you know, and if 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 you had an agency with, let's say, some more junior people, um, you know, in a not a very exotic location, you you can have a much you know 
lower cost base. I think the interesting thing is the particularly if you look in London, after after you have the people, you know, your clients generally want to visit you in a nice office. And so, yeah. you know, I think that can be I think when WPP had one of the subsidiaries, I think it was Ogilvy out in Canary Wharf, um, you know, that was at that time was too far away. When I worked at Instinctive Partners, um, we had an office near Tower Bridge and for some journalists that was too far east, believe it or not, at seven thirty in the morning for an analyst meeting. Um, and so, you know, both those businesses actually have moved west since. Yeah. So, you know, you can once you have the office sorted, the rest of it, um, having okay. kit, marketing I, expenditure. And if you look, you know, the 60, 20, 20, you're a perfect student. That would be a good set of but, metrics. But that's and, in theory, right? I mean, um, it seems to yeah. me that's, that's difficult to achieve. Though. Yes, and you're right. So if you look at um, if you I think I'm right in saying sort of average UK agency is about 13 percent profit against our target of 20. Yeah. Um, um, you're right, it can vary and that will vary with if your revenue dips or you have people at a point in time or you don't rigorously monitor your over-servicing and all of the other factors. Um, so it is hard, you know, I think to say it's still hard work to earn 15% margin in, yeah. in, in the in the. In but the 15% is not that profitable, is it? I mean, if you if you look at, yeah. in the in consultancy world, that's that's what we're used to. So we're going to have 15, 20%. But if you look at, uh, in, you know, in other types of businesses, Fifteen percent, you know, it's it's not great, is it? Is that is that me being too pessimistic, or is would, would you share that view? Um, I think, well, you know, the it, the answer is it depends. I think in a you know, it's a highly competitive market. Um, you know, you can have a situation where you will sacrifice revenue to have a client on your books that's yeah. strategic. Um, you can have good years and bad years, so you can have you know, it's highly variable to what happens in a particular year. Um, but I think an industry converging at fifteen to twenty, if you're in that bracket, you're, you're probably doing quite well. Okay, and I'm putting you on the spot. We haven't talked about That's this right. previously, but if I'm looking at accountancy firms or management yeah. consultancies, what sort of margin are they making relative to PR firms? I don't think they disclose them. I think, I think in a lot of okay. them, you get told the profit per partner. Right. In, when you look at some of the big, um, you know, if you look at the big four accountancy firms, they will they will issue a profit per partner. Number, but but my um, I'm envisaging that is yeah. that is better than the PR agencies. I would think that's margin. probably a fair assumption. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but but you're talking, you know, you're talking an entirely different business model yeah, and sure. scale and, okay. yeah, and and everything else. All right, um, and is that 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 so the staff of sixty percent of your yeah. that sounds to me that that always makes me that a I reckon that's tough to keep to because staff. Hard to, to, to uh, talent's a, a difficult area. There's there's a finite amount of uh, of talent about, so it's hard mm. not to give people pay rises and keep it at that sixty percent. But on the same token, I reckon that's that, that's quite a scary number, isn't it? If you're if you're earning a hundred pounds, about two hundred pounds, mm. I, I suspect I was doing a bit better than that. But <laughs> but but if you're spending sixty sixty pounds of that on just on your staff, that that seems like a lot. But that but that's the market we're in, right? So there's the, you. You, you, well, that, I often say that, that, that is the business. When when our people go home in the elevator each evening, um, you know your yeah. you know your your business has gone home, and so you do spend that amount in, in general. Sure. And, and the penchant that PR firms have for sort of nicer, sometimes marble cloud offices. What you're saying is that's that's a necessary penchant because um, it it matters 
from a client perspective, from a people's perspective and, and a location perspective? It does because, I mean, you can find um, – I can think of an example yesterday where a client can suddenly switch and say, look, can we come to your office instead of ours? Um, often clients, um, you know, to have a decent-sized meeting and to present. Yeah. I think it's just a you need it to operate. You've got to have it. Okay. And the – we talked a bit about it a minute ago, but let's just look at it. The that, – that, the, the 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 fixed cost versus semi fixed cost or whatever on the um, the the, free, the number of freelance staff as a percentage is is that leaving hotware out of it but as a, as oh. an industry trend is that on the I I get the impression that's on the increase the number of of freelancers who tend to work in PR firms is that is that your experience is that or things changing uh, as people need to be more flexible. It's probably increasing, but I don't think it's dramatic. I mean, okay. you still you still try to have your own people, and, and the reason you do is, you know, you're often you don't want to be you don't want to put five freelancers in a pitch with a client and say these five people might not be here next week. Yeah. So you know, you tend to use freelancers for really deep specialist skills. So let's say if you were pitching for a particular area where you didn't feel totally confident on the. The, you know the industry. Right. Adding a freelancer with that particular expertise to the team might give you a much you know much higher chance of winning okay. and a better performance. But um, so it's increasing, but not not in a. So, so what I see is, yeah, you, you, you will, I, I will hear, oh, we've got a freelancer in because they're a real expert in this, right. or we've got a freelancer in because they they know something. So it's a niche. You know, there are plenty of freelancers doing very well in a very narrow niche. But if you're if you're an account director freelancer, it's probably not quite right for Hotwire anyway. But, um, yeah, and you, yeah. you'll still be try, people will still try and put you in a niche. What what yeah. is your freelance expertise? Okay, and on the other side, on the revenue side, there's there's been for a long time now, probably the best part of ten years, a, a trend away from retainer towards project. I, I get the feeling that's not not increasing anymore. That so it, it, it's there's some more stability. Sometimes there's maybe even a trend towards coming back to retainers but what's your pitch on that? I think my pitch is the word retainer can be used probably more loosely than it used to be so um, I I think probably you know we we would have on a lot of the nearly everywhere I've worked you will have clients who will commit to an annual budget so they will say here you are here is an annual budget to to do this work now do you call that a retainer? Possibly it's not a recurring it will depend. So you you will typically have a the better I don't know what the better word is, but you have an annually confirmed budget you're operating against, which you have a high confidence will repeat in the following year. Yeah. And if you use something like seventy five percent confidence, I think I'll allow you then to call it a retainer. Okay. <laughs> it's it's um I think I think that's the trend, and and projects tend to be more usually leading to a longer-term relationship or you'll have a project on top of your retainer. So because you are doing this retainer work, we have a project we want you to do alongside that. I mean, when I I worked agency side, the... The cost per hour, in effect, was was more on a a project than it was on a retainer. A a client... You gave a, um, a client... Benefits for for that retained relationship, I suppose, economies of scale in a sense. Is that is that still the case now? Is that is it tends I think to be, that is still the case. Yeah, yeah. You, okay. you'll, you'll, you have to look at a. Um, I think you know we we, we in work general in, terms. I don't and a, but yeah. if you want an example, you know we work in the technology space, and so we work with a lot of of startups and people launching products and you know coming into the into the market and um, you know at a startup point, you your PR budget 
you may look at that in a in a particular way. And, and the three years later, when you're up and running and flying along, you know you're in a, you're thinking of it in a different way. So you can have projects at the outset of relationships which lead to longer term retainers, if sure. we call them that. Now, um, growth of, a, of an agency is 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 clearly one when the financial element there's different challenges at different different times um, so what how does the structure and management of a consultancy business change with with, with size and, and I suppose what are those those key phases yeah I mean it's interesting I've worked in um, I've not sort of worked in many different sizes of agencies and if we let's carry on with the example of you and I are making an agency and let's say we have one friend between this, us. This so, disastrous agency. Yeah, this, so we, we now have an agency of three, Ben. And um, the um, off we go. And I think, you know, here were my, in my head, sort of testing points. And then I'll give you some interesting thing I read. When we get, when you and I get to 10 people, um, sort of things change a bit. And um, we, we then might need somebody else in the team to manage the team. We might need a bigger office. We might, so things change. And, and when we get to 30, there's another inflection point, And you'll see a lot of agencies, in my opinion, anyway, getting not stuck, but stuck at 10 and 30. And there's a good reason for that, because if you and I are successful, when we get to about 30 people, if we're doing things about right, we'll probably be earning quite a good income. And the next stage of growth will depend perhaps on our clients, perhaps the fact that we want to invest in a bigger office. You know, there, there are inflection points. So um, by that you mean you, you probably in the short term have to make yeah. less money personally yeah. to invest in the business. And, and, you, and you have to have an attitude. So you have to know that you want to grow to that next stage and you have to delegate more and you have to, you know, you need, um, you need different things. And, and, and this is an interesting theory I've had for a while. But if you look at... Um, I was reading. I don't know if you read the Tim Ferriss books, but if you think yeah. it's the Tools of Titans, I tried. They weren't for me, um, but I did. Go, I gave it okay. a go. Okay, well, we won't use that in our agency, no, no. is it? But, <laughs> but you know, he. he um, I don't know where I read it, but um, um, Hiroshi Mikatani, the CEO of Rakuten, um, very well you know, done did, with that. Did, did with I get it right? One. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I wrote down. He wrote, every single thing in our agency, Ben, would break in multiples of three and ten. Okay. And what that means is the the systems, the payroll, the the office, um, for, for bizarre reason, the at those inflection points. And, and, you know, if I use Hotwire example, we're approaching 300 people and we are bringing in new systems and new ways of doing things um, because you have to keep innovating and you have to keep looking at how you do things. And it's not it's – a, it's a necessary part of growth that you have to keep innovating. Um, because the thing you – you use before yeah. breaks because it's you've got more people. Yes, right. exactly. So you know you need a, a global human resources system. You need your accounting system to be standardised. You need um, a way of communicating with everybody in the world. In a, in a so, so all of these things. Now, when we come back to our little agency of three, you and I don't need all those. Right. Um, so you. Um, so your multiple of three point is that so uh, 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 three ten a hundred three hundred right. Um, a thousand um, those breakpoints. Um, okay. you, you need to, and you you have to reinvent yourself, and that requires investment. Um, Everything which, which you've and yeah. you've got to be making enough money to be able to to make that investment or or get outside funding or something. Um, Absolutely, and I think okay. the other point is, if you don't, you suddenly look around one day and say, "Ah, oh, I have four hundred people, and I don't know, I don't actually have all their dates of birth in a coherent system. I don't have." Um, you know, yeah. coherent systems. Because all of those things that you didn't really used to matter, stroke you got away with, suddenly do matter. Absolutely. 
Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, now, timesheets. We could have a whole podcast dedicated to timesheets. Let's, let's do it next week. But they are they are an emotive topic, right? Who'd have thought? Um, but most MDs, not all. There's a there's an interesting bunch of FDs and, M- and CEOs who who don't use them. But most MDs I speak to say they remain the best way for a PR firm to, to manage its largest cost. As we've already discussed, its employees. Um, are you a timesheet fan? Of course. Okay. I mean, I think um, timesheet fan. I think they're a necessary. There's a T-shirt there. Well, look, I, <laughs> I, 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 I will tell you, right? I mean, when and we're working in um, a listed environment, we couldn't recognise. So I couldn't recognise revenue and the profit and loss unless people had done their timesheet. Um, I actually used okay. to give a, a wooden spoon award every month for the person who gave me the worst excuse for why they had not done their timesheet, and I would give it to them publicly, and I'd give the team that had done it a lunch uh, because it was so crucial to knowing the business. I think. Let's look at it from a client perspective. If a client says to me, well, this team is terrible, um, what on earth have they been doing? Um, tell me you know, tell me what's going on. Um, you need something to be able to manage your business and you need something to say. They um, spent X number yeah. of hours well, on, no, in our, on you know, Y. If you and I had our agency, Ben, and something's wrong and I don't know where you've been spending your time, I can't have a discussion with you who says, Ben, you know, what were you doing last week? Yeah. Were you pitching? Were you, were you sick? Were you, what were you doing? Um, so you do need it to help run your business. Um, and I think the everybody hates them. But, you know, they're, 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 I think they're a necessary management tool um, to run your business properly is probably what I'd say simply. But do they not uh, – uh, listen, I, 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 the, the, in that sense, the, the vast majority – um, of people have concluded that, that timesheets are the best way to run a, a, a PR firm, a consultancy. So, so I, and that's, I, I'm not particularly arguing against yeah. your logic. But there is a school of thought, isn't there, that they create an environment whereby time becomes too much of a dominant KPI in both internally and for the client. So, you know, for example, a great creative idea does not necessarily take a huge amount of time to come up yeah, with. Absolutely. So I can't really argue an alternative to them other than, I guess, charging by the idea or something. I don't know. But do, do you – do you, although you're a fan, do you find them mildly frustrating at the same time? Well, I think it's um, – I'll give you an interesting example of something that really happened to give the the point you're making, which is a client came to you know, a colleague of mine saying, I'm in London next week. Um, could I have an hour of your time next Wednesday? We we want to kick around a few creative ideas. And I tell you what, I'll even pay you for the hour at the end of it. And my colleague said to me, how the hell do I reply to this, Adrian? Um, because, you know, they're going to take all my ideas and run away. And the promise was something like, you know, if we like your ideas, we might come and work with you at Hotwire. Yeah. Um, and we wrote a response which said, look, the, you're not paying for the hour next Wednesday. You're paying for the... 15,000 hours that came before it for the person's experience that you're yeah. meeting. And so, you know, the, the that's the point you're making. And, and we're, you know, we are moving to value-based pricing. So actually thinking what is the value we're delivering? And interestingly, many clients are not that interested in the time spent. You know, no. they're interested in outputs. And, and the, the drivers of clients will, when they have these discussions, will only the timesheets only come up when there's a problem generally, when okay. the coverage has not been good enough, when they're not meeting their own internal targets, when it so tends to not so, be... So the, the timesheet is not an external tool, it's correct, an internal correct. tool. Correct, and that's the, okay. that, that's the really big 
trend um, that you needed to run your business, but externally, uh, also to create value for what you're creating. In my example, um, you cannot quote whatever the hourly rate is for that hour next Wednesday because that client is not buying that hour. No, they're buying an experienced professional, and you're absolutely right. You're at your point. If, if they want to, if um, they want to purchase that hour for twenty thousand pounds, they're more than welcome to. But yes, that, and but you, the, you could easily be delivering something yeah. of even yeah. greater value than that. Right. Um, okay. Fine. Um, now, other than time, how else? I suppose it's related to that that point. But how else can PR firms charge by output by value uh, you, you've mentioned value there but what is that you know how do you, how do you define that what is it it's it's hard to to, to, to put a number on that absolutely it? and it's something we're, we're we're you know I'm personally working very hard on the um, you can there are many ways of looking at this you know I have seen in the past clients saying I want to appear in the Financial Times the Economist the <laughs> Times and the Telegraph and that's the success for my campaign you have others who, in fact, the you might appear in those four publications, but you might not like the tone of voice or the message getting across. And so, the um, you know what the client is seeking can be different from appearing somewhere four times. It can be, um, you know, far different. And I think the challenge and the debate is identifying that value driver, and it can be different for everyone. Um, so you can have um, an identifying that and working with the client towards generating the work, targeting what they're trying to achieve, and then saying link the link the fee to that, please, instead of the the time spent because we are driving the value that you're seeking. Uh, but what happens yeah. if you don't drive the value? Um, uh, that, that, that's the obvious point to that, isn't it? What, absolutely right. So, um, so it's it, uh, you know success fee is it's, it's then in the realms of success fee, is it? So there's a there's a, a retainer, if you like, and then a, a percentage based upon. Yeah, and you you reach a you, you reach a consensus around that because you're right. It, it's very it's very difficult to um, and clients will recognise this too. So you can't you can't have an all or nothing. Um, yeah. It's got to be some element of jointly agreeing what matters, trying to measure that, and then coming to a mutually agreeable target that you know the agency feels they can deliver and the client will be comfortable with. Okay, fine. Um, now, when we spoke before, you, you, you said to me that PR firms tend to be cyclical businesses. Um, now, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, um, it's perhaps so much PR firms. It can be sentiment can change. So for, I'll give you two examples. So I've worked in agencies where we had different divisions. So the same agency, but we had corporate services, public affairs, technology team, lots of different teams. And you can find the the revenue cycles in those ebb and flow with confidence, with new people joining, with winning new clients. And you can find a period of 18 months in any of those can be entirely different. You can suddenly be flying high and then suddenly be in trouble. And when you also work globally, um, as I have for a long time now, you can find that economies, politics, um, the you know individual country, lots of different metrics can move your business. Two or three senior people can move on, and, and you can suddenly be in a very different place. Um, you know, within six months, okay. and you can bounce back again. And I think the um, it is that constant cycle which makes the businesses. You could still be growing, but you can be going through a lot of flux and change. 
um, sometimes for factors under your control and sometimes for factors outside your control. And, and you, your point is you just have to come to terms with that. There's not, there's not often um, not a huge, you can try and minimalise it, but very often you can't. Yes, but you have to, you provided come back to earlier on, if you manage your business as responsibly as you can and keep those basics going, then you see that coming and you do something about it. But right. it does. And because we have a, few, you know, a, bit, a bit of cash yeah. in the bank. You know, Correct. That but, but, you know, we are in an industry where it, you know, we talked about three-month visibility. We talked about lots of things. There's a constant flux. I mean, it's what makes it fascinating to work in as well because no two days are the same. There's variety. There's lots of things happening. But, but you know, there, there is a lot going on in these businesses every day of the week. I'd be just thinking about that from a global perspective because one of the things that, that Hotwire has done more than, than most other um, firms in the last 10 years has, has grown its footprint globally, geographically. Yeah. Um, how is, what is that down to that, from an FD's perspective? That, that means you have challenges around systems and, 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 and very, I'm just interested how you've, how you've managed to do that. Yeah, I mean we're you know we're we're fast approaching three hundred people. We're in fifteen offices. We're in twelve countries, and we've got a myriad number of affiliates. Um, we have um, built offices. You know, for example, in the last year, we've popped up an office in Mexico because we responded to a client and saw an opportunity. Okay. Um, we've even popped up in the middle of the United States in Minneapolis because we saw an opportunity. Um, the core offices. Um, are interesting. You know, if you look at Hotwire in France, we we are one of the market leaders in that territory, um, and um, the each of our offices is both global and local. So it will work. One of, one of the things about Hotwire that's contributed to its strength is the sharing of clients across the world. Sixty percent plus of our clients are worked on in all the different offices, okay. and um, that gives you some stability of revenue across those markets and opportunity to grow. But you will also have local clients. So we will have clients in Germany, France, Italy that are very local to that market. So the global and the local is what has been one of Hotwire's success factors. And um, the team being able to work on both levels, um, being able to switch from one to the other and work borderless is a key thing as well. So that our clients, um, I think one of the clients I work on is um, wanted to hire a challenger brand. They did not want to work with with all due respect, the big guys, they wanted a nimble, agile, challenger brand, um, which could respond quickly to what they wanted and give them something different. Right. Uh, I think those factors allied with having a very dynamic CEO in the States. I mean, when I joined Hotwire two years ago, we were 160 people. And as I said, we're approaching 300. Um, right. We've got a very dynamic Silicon Valley CEO, Barbara Betts, who I love dearly, who drives us every single day to innovate, to move forward, to change, to never be complacent. Um, and I think that um, it gives us an energy and a dynamism that, that means we can be the challenger brand against the big guys. Okay. Um, and I think if I've answered Wait. your question, yeah, no, <laughs> you, sort of all of the above has led to... Because that, that, that growth in the last couple of years, because there's been some pretty big acquisitions for Hotwire yeah. and so a bit of that growth has been acquisition and a bit of it's been organic I get the sense absolutely that, yeah right? okay. absolutely so um, you've worked for PR firms that are both privately owned and publicly owned um, just briefly are there, are there big differences in from the FD's perspective in, in, in that role yes the, the, the focus if I put where the key focus is so 
if you work in a listed environment, I mean, Hotwire's in a listed environment too. We're owned by a narrow group in Australia. But if I've worked in WPP, I've worked in publishers, and I've worked privately. So generally, in a listed environment, the focus is profit and loss. So as the finance person, you, your, your work will be dominated by where's the earnings, where's the profits, where's the visibility, where are we going, and less focused on... Um, Less focused on the balance sheet, if that makes sense. So, okay. so, so cash and working capital. In a pr- privately owned business, you can, um, you know, there are things I never did working in WPP, such as tax, treasury, working capital, because it was just all done for you by the big group. Right. When you're when you're in your own standalone business as a finance person, you've got to do everything. Right. Um, so there's this. I would put it as it's not that you don't do everything. It's just the focus is different. Um, and when you're privately owned, you know, the the focus is much more cash. Let's put it that way. You really are watching, yeah. you know, your debt, your overdrafts, your banking covenants. You're looking much more closely at um, that. And it's not that, you know, we manage cash rigorously at Hotwire too. But the focus, you know, if you're asking me the difference, is just slightly different. Okay. Um, I, I, mean, I suppose related to that, you, you worked in WPP for, yeah. as an FD for a while, which a company known for its... How can I put it? Financial prudence um, is 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 the legend right? You know, is is it is it um, as focused on the financials as we sort of all led to believe? Um, well, it's, it's a while since I was there, but yeah. <laughs> but when I was, the rigor, so the the rigor of monitoring the profit and loss um, dominated. Um, but that's. When you work there, and you that actually then gets into your soul, so it never yeah. really leaves it's not you. A bad and thing to have, and I have it? gone other places and implemented things I learned at yeah. WPP. Um, I think the interesting thing was the the data collection. Even fifteen years ago in WPP is one of the you know one of the reasons I think WPP was so successful. One of the reasons Martin Sorrell was seen as a you know industry barometer or leading indicator when he pronounced what was happening in the world it's because wpp had incredible data you know collected globally from the finance teams on on spend on client it was just he had a lot of the data so it was you know that's why he was such an expert on predicting the economy and what was happening right so there's a lot of data collection um, but i think and, and that's the, something you've taken from um, it and have implemented uh, uh, where you've been since including obviously hardware um, yes, I haven't gone probably to that, that extent. Okay. <laughs> so I'm not going to pretend that right. I am now, you know, replacing Martin Sorrell as the no. barometer of economy. No, I meant, but, I meant but, from but the I, data, the KPI but, but, side of things. But I think there is no doubt that data is is key to success and, and driving forward. I think the other part of, of that was the, um, the rigor in WPP made it, you know, you can be more flexible at, at Hotwire, for example, in terms of um, rewarding people for how they perform. Um, okay. It was a very rigorous environment around costs, which made it less flexible for um, than, a, than a smaller entrepreneurial yeah. business. Which is, I mean, which that, is what you expect. Exactly, yeah. without one to bash WPP yeah. for a business of that scale. No, I'm not. That, I mean, if you look, reality, at, isn't it, I look, look at the size and the scale yeah. and the success. And, yeah. and um, yeah. Okay. Now, from an FT's perspective... What do you see as the the future challenges for for modern PR firms? Because I, I get the I get the feeling that mix of costs is changing a bit. Um, I think the um, possibly I think if you talk if I talk costs first, I mean I think one of the changes I have seen is the the shift to to systems. So let's pick an example um, like Slack or Zoom or um, 
for example, we use those a lot, or Salesforce, we use all of those in Hotwire. They're absolutely amazing systems, but they come at a subscriber cost per person per month. And if you look back, given given my age now, you know, there's generally a free Microsoft alternative, but they're just not as business useful as, as the other ones that you need to pay for. And I think those changes mean, um, but you have to be agile when uh, Zoom, I don't know if you've used Zoom video conferencing, but when I met yes. Barbara Bates, my CEO, I'd never heard of it. Right. And she said, you must use this. And it took me six months to turn the video on when I was talking to her. And when, I, <laughs> when I did, she cheered. But we use Zoom every day globally in Hotwire. It's actually part of our fabric now of running our business. So that shift to using agile systems that drive you forward has a cost, but it's almost necessary to you know, pursue where you're going. My problem with that um, is that every every person I speak to has a different video conferencing software. So I've got. I'm with you, and, you, <laughs> yeah, and you, you can never log in. That happens to me me every day. However, you know, Hotwire we all do. I think the other part is, you know, the if you if you let me do this slide, the sort of Hotwire part is we're sort of guiding North Star of becoming the best agency you'll ever work with, and okay. building our business around our people and our clients, and you know, around on our people, for example, you talked about the. You know, the future, we have something thoughtful working. So work is a thing you do, not a place you go. So our people, when they wake up every morning, can think, where is the best place to do my work today? Do I need to be in the office because I'm meeting a client or do I need to stay at home because I'm concentrating on something? And that's coming from millennials and it's coming out of you know Silicon Valley, agile working, but it's making a massive difference to our teams and we've rolled that out globally. Um and if you think of a client perspective, we think very carefully around you know, how can we work with this client in the best way for what they want. And so being agile, entrepreneurial, those things are, I think, and we are finding incredibly important. And, and then coming back to the challenger point, clients want to work with agile, entrepreneurial agencies. They, they, they don't want more of the same um, from some of the larger agencies and where you can demonstrate, you can add that value. And for example, at Hotwire, our people really know each other because we invest a lot of money every year bringing them together from wherever they work in the globe so that they know each other. We invest in them visiting the other offices so our clients get a borderless experience. Those are the things that are making us successful. Right. And I think you know, for the general trend, um, the mixture of how you approach your people, your systems, your clients, the tools you use that you're giving the information back to your clients matter. Um, getting that mix correct but constantly innovating is a differentiator now and something we're quite proud of what we're doing in, in that area. Right. I mean, so all of that's I mean, that all sounds good, but it's yeah. added cost, right? Yeah. So presumably that at some point you need to turn around to the client and say, look, guys, are clients willing to pay? So you see what I mean. Not, again, taking hotware out of it, let's let's leave that aside because yep. it's too too personal. Yep. But as an industry wide thing, we're all trying to do more stuff, aren't we? Yep. Be that use of technology, do more 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 elements of, of the Marcom's mix. Um, and one of the challenges um, is to say to clients, All right, but you, this is great, but you need to you need to well, is PR increase? Are PR firms increasing their market share? And therefore, their revenues in that way, or is that, or are clients wanting them to do more, but not necessarily rewarding them for it financially? I'm not sure. I think I think clients, you know, one of my passions is, you know, the, or observations is that clients, certainly on global work, 
clients want to know that your global team know each other and can work together. And so unless you invest to make sure your people know each other, can work together, and they're not flying in from three places, meeting for the first time in reception before the pitch and saying, Ben, you do slide 12 and 13 and I'll do 14. My name's not Ben. Clients can can feel that. And so... They they won't you know they won't hire you as an agency unless you're hitting those criteria. Yeah, okay. And I I would it's worth investing. So, you, so your point is you haven't got yeah. any choice. You've got to do it. I, I yeah. think so. I mean I think yeah. if you're trying to operate globally, if you're yeah. trying to give a borderless, clean service consistently, you have to invest in, in necessary part to do that. Okay. And finally, then go on. Tell me about the Hotware Band. What's that? I hear you're a leading player. If you forgive the. Oh, band. the Hotware Band. Well, Hotware Band is my creation. We're called the Borderless Thinkers. Um, you might understand <laughs> why, that, why that is now on brand. But um, I've described. We have an annual boot camp where we bring the whole business together. Two years ago in Barcelona, I said to my boss, "I bet you I can find the musical talent, or there must be out there." So we we popped up and played a small set in Barcelona, and. Um, and the power of it was I had every country performing and I rewrote the lyrics to Piano Man, which is Barbara's favourite song, and we, you know, serenaded her. This year, um, we had our own Glastonbury north of Milton Keynes and we did an hour-long set and I had a drummer from Germany, a guitarist from Mexico, bassist from Australia, singers from France, Spain, UK, and we, I think, modestly say we took the house down, but it... Um, the so it's power. a good band. You, know, it's it's not, it, you should yeah. come and... You, can you play anything? Not, not a beat. Well, I'll put, you on, I'll, I'll put you on cymbals. Um, the, <laughs> the, um, the power is the, you know, bringing out the whole human in people and the the fact that, you know, when the France, my, my, you know, Clement from France sings, the entire French office goes wild. Gotcha. The Spanish team get on the stage right. and dance. It's a so good way of sort seeing... Sort of Band-Aid the, all over again. You can see, yes, yeah. it is. I, I, um, <laughs> I encourage you to learn an instrument. Brilliant. Adrian, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the PR Moment podcast, produced in association with the Marketeers Network. If you'd enjoyed the show, please do review us on iTunes and give us a decent rating.